Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Union County, South Carolina is a small community that includes Union, Lockhart, Jonesville, Buffalo, Carlisle, and Monarch Mill, the combined total population of which is just shy of only 28,000 residents, pretty small in comparison to the state's total population of roughly 5 million. Once a culmination of old Quaker villages and home to South Carolina's first Baptist church, dating all the way back to 1771, Union County was founded on the merits of religion and blue-collar values that are still very much present in its society today. However, since the collapse of the textile industry, and just like many areas that once relied on the production of raw materials in America, Union County has suffered an economic blow that it has never truly fully recovered from. Once a poignant representation of success, the old abandoned mills now stand vacant cascaded throughout the depleted neighborhoods as a reminder of what once was. Like anywhere else where jobs are scarce and good pay is hard to come by, crime usually follows as an unfortunate direct result. In fact, Union County happens to have one of the highest crime rates in the entire United States, even when compared with some of the nation's largest cities. According to a recent study, the chances of becoming a victim of either a violent crime or property damaged you're faced with the not-so-favorable odds of one in every 13 people. The median household income is $41,000, while roughly 6,000 of its residents currently live below the poverty line. While most members within this section of South Carolina largely keep to themselves, there's no denying the dangers that inevitably correspond with these types of statistics. The presence of crime here is a condition that locals unfortunately have learned to accept. But what happened back in 2013 was beyond anyone's comprehension of the concept. A vicious attack that would alter the perception of what the term violence truly means. In the small town of Jonesville, South Carolina, just hours after Sunday church services let out, an unimaginable murder case would send shockwaves throughout the small county. Most of us won't ever know what it's like to live through an actual nightmare. A bad dream you can't seem to wake up from. Even years later, pinching yourself only to find that you were never fully asleep at all. The people of Union County do know what that's like, a memory that will surely haunt some of them for the rest of their lives. When this random killing occurred, it wasn't long before the tragedy reached every television set in America, and the story spread like a mass media wildfire, almost as fast as you could say the word pedophile. It was the evening of July 22, 2013. A friend of Charles Parker, or Butch as most knew him, arrived at the 59-year-old's home at 2809 Furman Fendley Highway in Jonesville, South Carolina. The man had made an appointment with Butch to drop off his vehicle for some routine maintenance. Butch was a local handyman and mechanic in the Jonesville area, making his living by working on cars in his makeshift garage for locals in town. Butch occupied the residence with his wife, 51-year-old Gretchen Dawn Parker. As the man approached the house, taking his keys from the ignition, he began walking up the driveway toward the Parker's home, immediately noticing that the side door to the house was partially open. He also noticed a loud, high-pitched barking from what sounded like several small dogs coming from inside. The shrieks heightened the closer he came toward the residence. As he proceeded to the side of the house to grab the handle of the ajar door, he startedly jumps back as a pack of three frantic chihuahuas aggressively lunged onto the window glass. With no sign of Butch, the man began to yell aloud for him, repeatedly hollering out his name, trying to get the man's attention. After several attempts with no response, the man began to wonder if anyone was home at all. He peered through the windows but didn't notice any activity other than the group of chihuahuas following him from the inside as he canvassed the property's exterior. The man then realized that the dogs had not stopped barking since his arrival, not once. In utter contrast, their cries seemingly had escalated to 
to a higher frequency and volume. He suddenly recognized that this was not the type of bark that a dog makes when a stranger approaches someone's home. They sounded extremely agitated, yelps the man had never heard from a dog before. Something wasn't right, he thought. His idea that Butch may have just ran to the store quickly shifted when he noticed that his car was still in the driveway. That's when he began to worry. After exhausting all options, aside from barging into the mechanic's home, he decided he should call the police to investigate the situation further. Soon after the 911 call was made, in regards to a wellness check at 2809 Furman Fendley Highway, Union County Deputy Randy Manis arrived on scene at roughly 8 p.m. The officer called out, making his presence known, just as Butch's friend had several times earlier. Still no answer. By this point, the dogs have yet to stop barking. After banging on the door several times while yelling aloud, Sheriff's Department, Officer Manis is left with no choice but to enter the home. With both flashlight and firearm in hand, he carefully walks through the front door, proceeding along the main corridor, continuing to call out to anyone that might be inside. Upon turning the corner from the hallway and into the living room, Deputy Manis lays eyes on the dogs that had been incessantly barking since before he had shown up. He noticed two chihuahuas perched atop two shadowy figures, each on separate couches. As he walked closer, he realized the figures were not piles of laundry or linens balled on the couch, but instead that they were two human bodies. After making the gruesome discovery, and while the dogs viciously barked at Manus as they sat on top of what appeared to be their dead owners, he gets a clear view of each victim sprawled out on separate love seats. Large pools of blood surrounded what looked to be a male and female victim, but Manus couldn't be sure as there was a mass amount of blood covering both of their faces. The officer then frantically backpedals out of the home and into the side driveway as he scrambled to call EMS. By the time the ambulance arrived, it was far too late. The two victims had been deceased for quite some time inside of the residence, laying in a thick, dried layer of their own blood. But before authorities could properly assess the gruesome crime scene, several animals, including the chihuahuas, an entire litter of puppies, cats, and even chickens from inside of the home had to be contained and were quickly transported to a local shelter by animal control. Police were finally able to create a proper perimeter around the home, marking off the entrance of the Parker's driveway with yellow caution tape, as this entire location was now considered an active crime scene. By the following day, the commotion of emergency vehicles and abundance of police presence had created a buzz among the town, and word had already traveled throughout Jonesville. Before long, all of Union County would be made aware that an older couple had just been executed inside of their own home. Sure enough, the local media arrived shortly thereafter, looking for any information on the developing story. The dogs were aggressive. They were not big dogs, but they were aggressive, protecting their owners. That's Union County Sheriff David Taylor addressing local reporters not 24 hours after the dreadful discovery. The victims were quickly identified to be 59-year-old mechanic Charles Butch Parker and his wife, 51-year-old Gretchen Parker. The two appeared to have been murdered after an apparent home invasion gone wrong. Charles Parker suffered two gunshot wounds, one to his chest and another to the side of his neck, while Gretchen suffered one gunshot wound to the chest. But Gretchen Parker's throat had also been cut, and both victims had endured multiple stab wounds riddled among both of their torsos and neck area. Medical examiners would later conclude that both victims were still alive for the majority of their injuries, slowly perishing due to loss of blood and then left for dead. Police initially theorized that this must have been someone the couple knew personally, as there was no sign of forced entry or any belongings that appeared to have been missing from the home. But who would do such a thing and why? The Parkers were known in town as the quiet older couple in the neighborhood that virtually kept to themselves while living a very private life. Who could have wanted them dead? The Parker's neighbors were in complete shock to learn that the quiet couple living next door had just been brutally murdered. Oh, very sweet. You know, you see the people that have been together forever, how they kind of take care of each other. That's how they were. Both of them were very sweet. Be that as it may, authorities knew there had to be something more to this, quote, sweet couple's background especially when considering the horrific manner in which they had been murdered. 
This crime was far too intimate and violent to be considered a robbery gone wrong. The attack was clearly personal. As police began their investigation, they had yet to find any clue or potential suspects in relation to the killing of Butch and Gretchen Parker. As of now, Union County sheriffs say they do not have anyone in custody. They're urging anyone with information on this crime to call Crime Stoppers at 1-888-CRIME-SC. After local authorities conducted several interviews with residents in town, hoping to gain any information on who may have committed such a rage-fueled act of violence towards the Parkers, they decided to run both of their names through the Union County Police database. They quickly learned that the Parkers did have a misdemeanor drug infraction on their record from years past, but not anything specifically that jumped out at them as a correlation to this double homicide. That is, until they dug a bit deeper. After reviewing the couple's criminal past even further, police made a bone-chilling discovery. They learned that Charles or Butch Parker was actually a registered sex offender that had been charged and convicted of a sexual assault involving a child back in 1991. This immediately raised red flags to the Union County Sheriff's Department. Upon further investigation, they found that Parker had been convicted of an additional sexual assault, this incident having been more recent in 2003. At the time, he was found guilty of third-degree criminal sexual conduct against a 31-year-old disabled woman. According to his record, Parker was initially facing 10 years in prison for the sexual assault, but his sentence was later commuted and reduced to only five years probation. Things were starting to become a little less foggy to police in terms of potential motive at this point. Could the killer have been someone Charles Parker violated in the past, perhaps seeking revenge? Or perhaps it was a family member or someone involved in the sexual assaults directly who wanted to get even. To the Union County Sheriff's Department, this was not outside the realm of realistic possibility. While the homicide unit continued putting the pieces together of Charles Parker's dark and checkered past, officers back at the residence had made a discovery of their own, evidence that had been right under their nose the entire time, clearly advertised and out in the open, hanging in plain sight. Upon returning to his patrol car, and while examining the crime scene from a wider field of view, a police officer noted a bright and yellow sign nailed to a tree in the Parker's front yard. He couldn't believe it. It was too good to be true. Just beneath an orange and black posted no trespassing keep out marker was another warning that read, Smile, you're on camera, accompanied by a cartoon smiley face illustrated just beside the text. The deputy quickly informed his superior of this eureka moment. Lo and behold, mounted just above the entrance of the Parker's front door was indeed a small surveillance camera overlooking the property. Police knew that this could be a monumental break in the case, that is, if the camera was functional, and more importantly, if it were even recording at the time of the murders. With only one way to find out and no time to waste, the Union County Sheriff's Department directed their full attention to retrieving the surveillance footage. After obtaining the footage from the Parker's home camera, police were stunned at what they found. Not only was the camera fully functional, but it was also brand new, as Butch's former roommate had just helped the couple replace their new security system two weeks prior to their murders. But luck wouldn't even begin to describe the evidence bestowed upon law enforcement. Police scanned back to the estimated time at which they believed the murders to have taken place. They knew that whatever was on this tape, if nothing else, the individual or individuals that killed the Parkers would surely be revealed. July 21st, 2013, 1.20 p.m., approximately time-coded on the top of the video feed. Police viewed for the first time the events of that day. Just before 1.30 p.m., the footage displays what appears to be a silver Chrysler PT Cruiser, pull in and then park at the edge of the driveway. A male then exits the vehicle and pops the hood. Soon after, a second male, presumed to be Butch Parker, is seen exiting the front entrance of his home, walking toward the individual, now standing beside the car. The two seem to engage in casual conversation for roughly 10 minutes, both motioning toward the engine, presumably discussing what seemed to be an issue with the man's vehicle. During the conversation, the camera then captures a female exit the entrance of the home and meet with the two men at the end of the driveway. The woman in the frame is quickly identified by police as Gretchen Parker. 
few minutes later, while Butch is seemingly preoccupied with releasing the hood latch and closing the cover back down, the unidentified man brandishes what appears to be a pistol from the back of his waistband. Although no audio was captured, Butch's body language has visibly shifted from neighborly to defensive as the two homeowners are seen taking a step back. Just then, not seen until this point, another female is seen exiting the passenger side of the Chrysler. Immediately after, the group of four are seen walking slowly back toward the house, Butch and Gretchen leading the way, with the unidentified man and woman walking in close proximity behind them. Just as the group reaches the front door at approximately 1.37 p.m., the unknown driver of the car is clearly seen pointing a handgun towards the couple's back, seemingly directing the two inside of their own home. Just before all four exit the frame, the unidentified woman accompanied by the driver then pulls some sort of pointed object out from behind her back. After zooming in closely, police realize the object the woman had been concealing was a knife. All four then stepped inside the residence and out of the camera's view. Police continued to watch the eerie footage, knowing that they had just witnessed the last time that Gretchen and Butch would ever be seen alive again. At 1.41 p.m., just under six minutes after all four first entered the home, the driver of the Chrysler along with his female companion are seen exiting the Parker residence. The two then casually light up a cigarette on the front steps. At approximately 1.42, the man and woman begin walking back to their vehicle, get in and drive away. Authorities are aware that they've certainly captured the moments leading up to and directly following this double homicide. However, they were still faced with one major issue. As most of us know, security footage isn't always of the best quality. They knew that they had both a male and female suspect driving a silver PT Cruiser as the getaway car, but the footage itself was grainy. It wasn't a high enough resolution camera where they could definitively ID the suspects. On top of that, the car was too far away to get a clear read of the license plate number. Frustrated knowing just how close they were to catching the killers, Sheriff David Taylor began racking his brain on how he could produce a better image from the tape. He then remembered a conversation he'd had with a fellow sheriff in the neighboring county of Spartanburg. He recalled that Sheriff Chuck Ride had once mentioned his department's capabilities of enhancing video footage. The Union County Sheriff quickly called in a favor to his old friend's department, roughly 30 miles away, and the tapes were immediately sent off to be digitally enhanced. Sheriff Taylor knew this video was his only true hope of capturing the two individuals that brutally murdered both Butch and Gretchen that Sunday afternoon in Jonesville. Relying on his one and only lead, he was forced to anxiously wait for the new tapes to be turned around. As night fell over Union County, the killers were still at large, though not for long. Before they knew it, Union County Police had the new and improved footage back in their possession. With a much clearer and brighter image, members of the homicide unit sat down for a second time to meticulously rewatch the moments leading up to the grisly homicides. Focusing on the frame in closest proximity to the camera, the moment before all four individuals entered the Parker's home, a member of the investigative unit recognized a small, unique physical characteristic that wasn't previously visible in the original tape. He then asked his colleague to fast forward where the two suspects are seen leaving the home to get a better view of his newly found discovery from a different angle. That's him, he said. The detective noticed an undeniable and certainly uncommon tattoo across the subject's neck, skinhead, and large, black, bold font. Detective Jermaine Smith's memory immediately jogged back to an interview he'd conducted with a man that had a strikingly similar tattoo for an unrelated drug charge the year before. Other officers also confirmed the identity to be someone they believed to have been seen around town. Let's face it, how many guys have skinhead in all cap letters tattooed on their neck that drove a PT Cruiser in Union County? At least one, and police were certain they had their man. And if their suspicions were correct, they'd be willing to bet that they knew who his female companion was as well. Detective Jermaine Smith, who was head of the Union County gang unit, was sure that the man seen on this new and improved video was no other than 31-year-old Jeremy Moody of Lockhart, South Carolina. On July 24, 2013, police now had enough evidence to arrest their main suspect, Jeremy Moody, as well as the woman seen with Jeremy holding a knife behind her back. 
that individual was presumed to be his wife, 36-year-old Christine Moody. The couple was eventually tracked down at Jeremy's mother Tammy's house, where they were both placed under arrest at 3.45 a.m. for suspicion of murder. As the two suspects were being held in custody and denied bond, Detective Smith began reviewing the existing case file on record for Jeremy Moody's 2012 drug charge. He hoped to gain any information that would help build a case, resulting in a conviction for the double homicide. After pulling up Moody's mugshot, Smith is instantly reminded of the unforgettable skinhead tattoo, clearly visible across Jeremy's throat, that was also captured on Parker's surveillance video. He also remembered the words, Made in America, tattooed on the side of his head, as seen from the profile view in his photos. White power was permanently inked on the top of his bald scalp. And finally, two devil horns, tattooed above each temple. Smith recalled that in their original interview, Moody had stated that he outwardly disliked African Americans. And as an African American man himself, Detective Smith humored the man and politely asked Moody to elaborate. During this interaction, nearly one year prior to the Parker murders, Moody veered from answering the question in depth, yet eventually replies with something to the effect of, I just don't respect black people. At the time of his arrest in 2012, Jeremy Moody was brought in for selling prescription pills on the street. He claimed he had been doing so in order to help pay his wife Christine's medical bills, who had been diagnosed with breast cancer years before. Christine's unfortunate bout with cancer was indeed true, and the couple had fallen on hard times. However, Smith wasn't exactly buying the complete rendition of Jeremy Moody's story. After a bit more questioning, Smith remembers inquiring about Moody's white pride tattoos, asking whether they had any significance in regards to a possible gang affiliation. He responds with a proud yes, and that he was in fact an active member of Crew 41, a hate-fueled organization operating predominantly online, founded on the ideals of ridding the world of anyone that wasn't of his, quote, superior white race. Smith pried a bit deeper and asked Moody if he was actually selling prescription drugs for Crew 41, to which he eventually admitted as being the truth. Ultimately, Moody would be sentenced to three years in prison, but that sentence was later suspended, Moody only ultimately having to serve 18 months probation for the drug charge. Although Jeremy Moody got off easy for illegally selling narcotics back then, that didn't mean the police wouldn't be watching him moving forward. The 2012 arrest was the first time the Union County Police had ever heard of Crew 41. The gang up until that point was virtually unknown. It did, however, pique their interest in learning more about the organization. They wanted to be sure that this Crew 41 wouldn't be of any potential danger in the future. It was at this time that authorities began following both Jeremy and Christine Moody's social media pages, devoting their keen attention to Facebook. Not much was uncovered aside from one crucial aspect that would unknowingly help them to build a case almost one year later involving the horrific deaths of Butch and Gretchen Parker. But we'll get to that. See, after covertly monitoring the Moody's online activity, police learned that Christine was in fact a key player in the Crew 41 gang herself, and perhaps even more so than Jeremy. Alternating between various Facebook accounts, police found evidence of Christine's attempts to recruit members to their racist organization. The quote, Crew 41, South Carolina chapter. Crew 41 struggled to make a name for itself in the white separatist movement, and police eventually decided to dedicate their resources elsewhere. Regardless, here's an interesting passage from one of Christine's many Facebook accounts, posted under the ever-so-elusive moniker, Christine Mengele. All cops are bastards. 841. The following day, she wrote, the blacks will never have a separate black nation within the United States, Mr. Farrakhan. A friend of Christine's in the comments section replied to the post by saying, quote, Hell, I would be happy to move where my mailman is white. Bet I would get my mail then. Arg. Let's seclude them all to Detroit and leave them there. I would like to raise my Nordic babies in peace. The following day, Christine writes, Looks like I may have a good potential prospect. Things are looking up. 841. It's unknown if Christine ever actually successfully recruited any members to Crew 41, but she sure as hell tried, almost daily in fact. For those who may not know, Mengele, used here replacing Christine's actual last name on her alternate Facebook account, is a clear homage to Joseph Mengele, the German physician known as the Angel of Death, infamous for his deadly medical experiments used on the prisoners of Auschwitz during the Holocaust. 
just for historical context, while also attempting to get an idea of just exactly where the Moody's heads are at. Mengele was one of the members who personally selected victims to be killed in the gas chambers, and would also administer the gas himself. Quite some time after the war, while vacationing in Brazil, however, Mengele would have a stroke while swimming, drowning to death in 1979, but that's beside the point. The point is that Christine and her husband both glorified Nazi extremism to an obsessive degree. They had a clear mutual resentment toward anyone that was not white. Christine often referred to herself online as skinbird, apparently a term meaning female skinhead. OG Triple OG was tattooed on the inside of her hand, meaning original gangster. Three times the gangster, in fact, otherwise known as a highly respected figure among her pale-skinned brethren. As far as the 841 religiously included at the end of nearly every Facebook post she wrote, we're only left to assume that she's creatively combined the number 8, which in racist terms represents Hitler, i.e. H being the 8th letter of the alphabet, more commonly seen as 88, referencing Heil Hitler and the 4-1 surely representing the admiration for her beloved Crew 41. Now that you've gotten a crash course in the history of neo-Nazi numerology, you may be asking, what's the importance of all of this? What does this couple's fascination with the alt-right white power movement have to do with the death of the Parkers? The Parkers were an old white couple. Surely the Moody's wouldn't kill off two of their fellow whites, right? And aside from the drug charge, neither Jeremy nor Christine had ever had much serious conflict with the law. They were even known in town as church-going people. Sure, they were racists, but did that make them murderers? Believe it or not, Jeremy Moody's father was even a well-respected preacher. On top of that, there was no existing evidence that the Moody's knew the Parkers at all. Murdering the couple didn't seem to make any sense, or did it? Police weren't ready to give up. They had the surveillance footage, but they knew they needed more. And as they continued to unpack the background of these individuals, police realized early on a potential motive behind this double homicide. You see, the Moody's didn't just despise blacks, Jews, and Asians. Fascinatingly enough, they also hated child molesters and pedophiles, more than all of them combined. Fast forward back to 2013, Jeremy Moody is sitting in an interrogation room not unlike the one he sat in the year before. However, this time, he wasn't on the hot seat for pushing Oxycontin on the Ave in Union County. He was being questioned for murder. In a separate room just down the hall, Jeremy's wife Christine was also being questioned at the very same time. She refused to speak to investigators altogether. After all, she knew better than to speak to cops. That's gang life 101. Jeremy Moody initially sat silent as well even when they presented him with the video evidence of him allegedly entering and then vacating the Parker home. But eventually, he would agree to talk, but only under one condition. He would only speak to one officer, and one officer only, Detective Jermaine Smith, the same man that questioned him the year before. Taken aback by the burly racist request sitting before them with skinhead abrasively engraved ear to ear, just below his chin, they complied. He wanted to speak with one of the few African-Americans on the force, and investigators confusingly agreed if it meant that he would talk. Once Detective Smith entered the interrogation room and his colleagues had left, he sat in front of Moody. Smith bewilderingly asked the suspect why he chose only to speak with him, while Jeremy responded with, I trust you. I won't talk to anyone but you. You never judge me. You've always been good to me. Detective Jermaine Smith was all ears. Jeremy Moody then proceeded to tell the one man he trusted in law enforcement every grave detail of the vicious crime. He began by confirming to Smith that both he and his wife had a deeply rooted hatred towards those who abused children. He confided in the officer, exposing that his wife Christine had been raped and abused by an immediate family member from the age of two up until her early teenage years. Later in her early adulthood, Christine was raped by a different man, who was eventually sentenced to three years and 18 months for the sexual assault. As if Christine's story couldn't get any worse, once the man had completed his sentence, he reportedly stalked Christine, following her every move for quite some time after his release from prison. Jeremy continues by telling Smith that he himself had been molested as a child by his grandfather. However, Jeremy's own mother would later go on record to debunk this claim, 
yet admitted that his grandfather had in fact abused other children in their family. Through their shared similar trauma, the couple bonded, he explained, the circumstances only strengthening their love for one another as a result of their shared pain. Jermaine Smith couldn't believe his ears, but continued listening intently anyways. He knew that he needed a confession. Moody continued spilling his guts, explaining to the detective that just after the couple was married in 2009, after meeting online, they made a pact, a common life goal, that the two of them would plan to kill as many child molesters and pedophiles as humanly possible, and what they saw as the ultimate act of revenge for the innocence that had been stripped away from them at such a young age. For years, the Moody's plotted, researched, and even visited the homes of potential victims, but never once followed through. That is, until now. They began collecting random names the couple found from the online Union County Sex Offender Registry. Jeremy then lends a jaw-dropping admission to Detective Smith, which he immediately reports to Sheriff Taylor, who would in turn relay Moody's message to the media. He uh, made the comment to our investigators this morning that uh, he had made plans to kill another individual today uh, if we had not arrested him. Moody revealed that plans were already set into motion for the two to kill another sex offender on Wednesday, July 24th, 2013, the very same day they were arrested. Jeremy then directed Smith to where he could find the list for their next intended victims. Unbeknownst to Jeremy, police had already searched the home just after he and Christine were arrested. Authorities found the note that Moody spoke of, handwritten on a white envelope, containing six additional names of sexual predators that they intended to kill. It was indeed located exactly where Jeremy Moody said it would be. In all 50 states in America, sex offender registries are free, publicly available, and easily accessible online. Sexual offenders are most often required to register as such every year. With just a few clicks of the mouse, you can find who in your community has been convicted of a criminal sexual offense, along with their current home address and other detailed personal information. Moody confessed that Charles Butch Parker was randomly selected from the Union County Sex Offender Registry. In 2012, the couple drove to Parker's home, but chose not to kill him then, abandoning their plan last minute. He admitted to Detective Smith that it didn't matter if they knew the victim or not. The only criteria was that the individual had been convicted of a sexual assault, specifically targeting those who have harmed children. When the time finally came to act out what they saw as a service to their local community, the couple got into Jeremy's car and drove to the Parker residence, this time fully prepared to carry out the murder. The pair had done enough research by this point to know that Butch was an amateur mechanic. So under the guise that Jeremy was having car trouble, they would lure Parker out of his home to look under the hood. It was at that time that Jeremy planned to pull his pistol from his waistband, forcing Butch and Gretchen back inside, holding them as prisoners inside of their own home. Investigator Smith continued to listen in utter disbelief as Jeremy Moody began revealing every twisted detail of their plot. He stated that once inside, Charles Parker said something to the effect of, What do you want? We don't have any money. Jeremy Moody responded to the man calmly by stating, quote, I'm not here to rob you. I'm here to kill you because you're a child molester. He then fired the first shot at Butch, rendering him helpless as he fell to the couch behind him. Parker, completely defenseless, is struck again, this time with a bullet to his neck. Moody then turns his attention to Gretchen Parker and fires a single shot, striking her in the center of her chest. Both victims still alive, yet barely hanging on. Christine then takes it upon herself to finish the job. With Gretchen now in a chokehold position, Christine raises the knife to the woman's neck and slits her throat, leaving her there to bleed out. She then proceeds to stab Gretchen several times over. Christine then walks over to Butch and delivers a few final stabs to the abdomen of his body as well. The two then nonchalantly walk out the door. After finishing a smoke and before getting back into their vehicle, Jeremy instructs Christine to leave the door open to quote, Let the bugs eat them. Detective Jermaine Smith was still a bit confused. If Butch was the registered sex offender they had set out to kill, then why did Gretchen have to die? When answering Jermaine Smith's question, Moody coldly stated, Because she had poor judgment, she married a child molester. 
When Jeremy Moody's family was informed of the full details surrounding his involvement in the murders, they were left in disbelief. They knew Jeremy hadn't been doing well financially and were confused by his only fairly recent subscription to the white power movement, but they never knew that any of it would amount to murder. Here's Moody's cousin, Shane Allen, just moments after learning that his cousin had been arrested for murder. I don't guess it's really sad in, to be honest with you. That's gruesome. It's pretty crazy. It's stuff you see on TV, but you're not the one behind the camera speaking about your family member. And now I'm in that position. And it's, it's a little odd. Our family sends our condolences to the families that were affected by this. Police clearly had everything they needed to charge Jeremy Moody with first-degree murder. With his detailed confession, their case was seemingly shaping up to be rock solid. However, they still needed more from Christine. After being interviewed multiple times, she still wouldn't talk, other than saying a few words here or there proclaiming her innocence. She placed all of the blame on her husband and told police that she had nothing to do with the murders. After the motive behind these killings broke to the local media, the story spread like a struck match to a gasoline-soaked brush pile. As shocking as the story was to anyone that turned on the news, the Moody's neighbors that lived next door to the couple in Lockhart were dumbfounded. I never thought he'd do nothing like it. Like I said, I talked to him a lot of times. I never, I never thought nothing like it about him. Matter of fact, I don't think nobody around here did. He was a nice, pleasant to talk to. It was a shock. The story quickly permeated past local media outlets, and the sensationalized tale of the skinhead vigilante who planned to kill all pedophiles soon made national headlines. Once Christine became aware that Jeremy was receiving all the glory in the media, she eventually changed her tune and decided that she too wanted her fair share of credit. She would inevitably give a full confession herself, admitting her equal involvement in murdering both Butch and Gretchen. When police were finally satisfied, Feeling they've gained all that was needed to put both Moody's away for life, they quickly realized that this story wasn't over yet. As Jeremy continued to voluntarily speak with Detective Smith, police would be shocked to learn that the death of the Parkers may have just been the beginning, and that the neo-Nazi couple may very well be a pair of two extremely dangerous serial killers. Jeremy Moody was already basking in the media attention he knew he'd be receiving on the outside while he sat in jail awaiting his hearing. Apparently that attention wasn't enough, however. He told Detective Jermaine Smith, the one person in law enforcement that he would divulge any information to, that he had in fact killed even more people. Several more. Moody began providing details to the claims of four other murders he'd been involved in all throughout Union County. Bodies that had simply never turned up but victims that Jeremy insisted he had killed. Moody provided specific locations as to where the bodies could be found, sending search teams all throughout the upper region of South Carolina. But in the end, none of these claims could be substantiated. There were no bodies, and Jeremy Moody had sent police on several wild goose chases throughout the state. He simply didn't want his buzz in the media to fizzle out. He clearly wanted to portray himself as a serial killer but he wasn't. There was absolutely no evidence to date that neither he or Christine had ever murdered anyone other than the Parkers. Soon their trial would begin, and the Moody's' 15 minutes of fame they so desperately desired would finally come to an end. On Tuesday, May 6, 2014, Jeremy and Christine Moody were ushered into a Union County courtroom to enter their respective guilty pleas. Both shackled by their hands and ankles, the two were visibly overjoyed, as it had been roughly one year since they had seen each other. As they stood side by side, separated only by one court-appointed lawyer, the two were smitten to be in the same room together. The Moody's would be tried simultaneously for the murders of Butch and Gretchen Parker. Throughout the entirety of the hearing, Jeremy and Christine flirted and batted eyes at one another, often snickering and whispering casual anecdotes to each other throughout. The awkwardness of the bizarre behavior exhibited by the two defendants was palpable as the Parker's family was forced to witness their loved one's killers playfully and thoroughly enjoy each other's company. The defense for both Jeremy and Christine had willingly entered a guilty plea. However, their attorneys were seeking a maximum of 30 years, attempting to save the couple from a lifetime behind bars. But before the two can enter their pleas, the judge is required to ask the defendants a series of procedural questions, 
Christine Moody's response to the questions was nothing short of baffling. Has anyone promised you anything or held out any hope of rewarding you in order to get you to plead guilty to these charges? Just fame and fortune. Just fame and fortune. Christine Moody certainly wasn't doing herself any favors in regards to any future appeals. The judge, unamused by the defendant's comments, would then hear arguments from the state. The prosecution insisted the murderous couple be given the maximum sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. They presented the opinion to the court that these two individuals were extremely dangerous and likely to reoffend if ever granted release from prison. While the state ultimately would agree that the Moody's involvement in Crew 41 did not substantiate enough proof to link the murders to their gang affiliation, they did, however, bring up a very intriguing piece of white nationalist literature found in the Moody home a paperback book authored by Jeremy Moody himself that was discovered by police at the time of his arrest. The importance of this 85-page self-published paperback was a particular chapter titled Child Abuser, I Seek Your Death. One quote in particular that stood out to authorities in regards to potential correlation to the murders was found in said chapter that read, quote, The only cure for child abusers and molesters is to have every member of their immediate family killed. By destroying their immediate family members, you purify the bloodline. This is the only way to ensure that they, the pervert or family, cannot ever hurt a child again. This manifesto, penned by Jeremy's own hand, is entitled Yesterday, Today, and Forever. The name of the book was inspired by a Florida oi punk band called Children of the Reich, who released an album under the same title. That LP came out in 2005, and just like most racist propaganda, its sales have been banned from sites such as Discogs.com and has essentially been wiped out from the internet altogether. Here is a post screen captured from Jeremy's alternate Facebook account, Jeremy Mengele, where Moody attempts to sell his book to friends online. Personal message me your addresses for those interested in my book. It's fourteen eighty-eight. You can PayPal it or mail it, however you want, or pay me later. In true cryptic and racist Moody fashion, the book is conveniently priced at $14.88, symbolically honoring the white supremacist rite of passage, the 14 words, as well as the numbers 8-8, which we've learned earlier from Christine to represent Heil Hitler. But it wasn't so much the white nationalist theme of the book that authorities were so interested in with regard to this case. Instead, they were captivated by the specific chapter, a section of the book dedicated entirely to one man's violent intolerance of pedophiles, written in Jeremy Moody's own words. Not that authorities needed any additional evidence at this point, however, it did lend to the theory that if Moody were ever to be released from prison, he would most likely do exactly what he told Detective Smith he would do, kill more people, specifically kill more sex offenders. The defense from both the Moody's attorneys would be founded on the couple's history of mental illness and sexual abuse. At age 17, Jeremy had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. He stated that as a result of his poor mental health, he suffered from grandiose delusions and hallucinations. He was convinced that he was a foot soldier of God, and on the morning of the murders, while attending Sunday church service, claims he was delivered a message directly from the Lord, instructing Jeremy to carry out his plan. His attorney argued that because Jeremy was unemployed, he could not afford his medication. He insisted that had Jeremy been using the prescribed mood stabilizers, these events likely would never have taken place. Jeremy's mother Tammy expanded on this belief by stating, quote, When Jeremy was going without his medicine, he would tell me, Mama, I'm getting suicidal. I'm having homicidal thoughts because I haven't had my medicine. Tammy then proceeded to tell the court that she often had to talk her son off a proverbial ledge, reminding him of his mental illness. Whether her words fell on deaf ears or if Jeremy's delusions truly did get the best of him, either way, it was clearly too late. Christine's attorney brought up the fact that she had suffered from PTSD as a result of being molested from the age of two years old until her early teenage years. She had also been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and had undergone a double mastectomy during her battle with breast cancer years before. Her lawyer attributed these issues as evidence of Christine not being in the right frame of mind at the time of the killings. When given the opportunity to speak, the couple both surprised everyone by asking for forgiveness and expressing a sense of remorse. Christine read aloud from the Bible, offering an apology for not abiding by the Sixth Commandment, 
thou shalt not kill. The Bible clearly states thou shalt not kill. I'm sorry I broke that commandment, but I truly believe God has forgiven Jeremy and I. I hope she will too. Our preacher has taught me a lot, one of those things being that mercy will show up. I am here today to beg for mercy for my loving husband and myself, so Jeremy and I will have an opportunity to grow old together and spend time with our children, and God willing, our grandchildren. Jeremy and I have what we refer to as fairytale love. It's truly like something anyone has ever experienced. I have had a difficult life, and meeting Jeremy was my saving grace. Jeremy found my cancer when I was sick. He saved my life. For his love, I am eternally grateful. In fact, I'd like to take a brief moment to address my husband. Jeremy, so that's the part I carry in heart. I carry in my heart. Your Honor, please see that Jeremy and I are sentenced to the same sentence of 30 years. Never kissing my husband or feeling his touch again is my very worst nightmare. Please give us the light at the end of the tunnel. It is truly astounding how Christine brazenly mentions that not being able to see Jeremy again would be her worst nightmare. She somehow has managed to minimize and downplay the actual living nightmare the Parkers endured when she and her husband shot and stabbed them to death in their own home. Regardless, Jeremy would speak next, demonstrating a bit more genuine repentance than his better half, a sincerity shown on the surface at least. I don't know what I've done as a sin, and I believe that God has forgiven me of it. I want the court to know that I've lost everything that matters to me, my children, my wife, and my family. On the right medications, but have never had Please have mercy on Christine and I so we can still have a chance to grow old together as husband and wife. When the victim's family members were given their opportunity to address the court, Gretchen Parker's sister, Melissa Cole, approached the podium to give her victim impact statement. My sister never met a stranger. She was loved by everyone that knew her, and she had many friends. These two are absolute animals to have shot my brother-in-law twice, stab him to death, and then turn and shoot my sister in the heart, slit her throat, mutilate her body, and then brag about it. It has brought a lot of pain, anguish, and restless nights. I ask you, just throw away the keys. After all parties had said their piece, it was time for the court to make its official ruling on the murders of both Gretchen and Charles Butch Parker. I ain't proven to kill these two people. These two people, they had nothing, no way to defend themselves or anything else. And I tell you that I, I believe that if these two were to get out of jail, uh, I would be concerned that they would do exactly the same thing as uh, any question. Uh, and so I, I would be very concerned if they ever got out of prison again that they would kill some other people out there because they didn't want them um, for their own reasons. Um, but I, I think it is a case that justice is very enough and demands uh, a life sentence. I would ask that the victim family be allowed to leave. Just as Circuit Court Judge Lee Elford hands down a life sentence without the possibility of parole for both Jeremy and Christine Moody, the two lovers immediately lean in and embrace one another with an extended, half-open-mouthed kiss. You can hear the judge strike his gavel, attempting to gain order after the strange display of public affection. It's at this time when Jeremy and Christine reveal their theatrics of regret and guilt on the stand were simply an act. Now that their fates have officially been sealed, Neither one of them ever likely to see the light of day again. The truth finally comes out. After he kisses his mother goodbye, and while he's escorted out of the courtroom, Jeremy Moody turns to the Parker family still sitting in their bench and yells aloud, See you perverts later. That's what child molesters get. With nothing to lose, Jeremy Moody delivers one last dagger to the Parker family as if he hadn't already put them through enough. But the outspoken couple wasn't finished yet. Just moments later, as the local media waited outside for the newly convicted murderers to exit the courtroom before being transported off to prison, the Moody's told reporters how they really felt. Child molesters do not deserve to live. They got exactly what they deserve. 
I had to do it over again. I've killed more. I think Jeremy and I would have done it again if given the opportunity. Do you have any regrets? I have no regrets. Killing that pedophile was the best day of my life. What about not being able to see Jeremy? Jeremy and I have a love that will withstand this. What about what you said in court about repenting? Is that not true then? No, it's not true. My lawyer made me say it. Do you have anything to say to the victim's family? May they die also. Once both Jeremy and Christine were finally taken away in their separate police cruisers to begin their life sentence within the Department of Corrections, court solicitor Kevin Brackett and Sheriff David Taylor spoke with the local media in regards to the Moody's' strange outbursts in court. Obviously, any claims of remorse that the, the defendants made to their lawyers were false. Sheriff, can you speak on to how you feel that you heard what they said coming out here that they wanted to kill again, getting them behind bars for life? When Solicitor Kevin Brackett was asked if he believed justice had been served for the victims' families in this case, he provided this profound statement, emphasizing his opinions that the Moody's would not be entitled to an existence outside of the penitentiary. Not in this lifetime, and quite possibly not in the next. I think it was. Um, you know, I told them when we met and, and they agreed, uh, the Moody's have all eternity to be dead, but they can only suffer a lifetime of incarceration one time. So they're going to do that. And then uh, the, the Lord will look after uh, the justice in the, in, the, in the great beyond. So uh, right now they've got uh, a lifetime in the South Carolina Department of Corrections to look forward to. And uh, hopefully we can just forget about them after today and not uh, give them any more consideration because they don't deserve it. After the Parker murders, the controversial debate would inevitably arise as to whether the sex offender registry should be open and available to the public, or if there should be more protections in place for those on the registries. With the majority of Union County at ease, knowing two murderers were now off their streets, some now feared for their lives more than ever before. Just days after the Moody's were sentenced, a Union County family, consisting of two members that were listed as sex offenders on the registry in the Union County District, were interviewed by the local media. They feared that if the Moody's hadn't been arrested, they too could have been next. They're not going to come in and slaughter my family just because I'm on the registry and because they don't have enough common sense in a world of massive technology to do their research before they do anything. How do I know they weren't going to come in here and murder my entire family? How do I know it wasn't my husband or my son? I'm afraid to be out. Somebody screamed by in a car leaning out the window saying you better watch your backs because we're gonna burn this whole that house down you perverts there's obviously no easy cut and dry solution as to how law enforcement is both expected to protect the general public from tier 3 sex offenders while simultaneously protecting the rights of those on the registry from potential danger or violent crime. One thing is for sure, however, if those convicted of the criminal sexual acts are already concerned for their safety, privacy, and anonymity, surely taking interviews on live television to exploit the names, addresses, makes, and models of their family's vehicles are not in their best interest. Be that as it may, we're left to assume that this story couldn't possibly get any more bizarre than it already is. But then again, we'd be wrong. Another shocking development in Union County would soon be exposed. Kim Bailey was found dead in her home on March 27th from a gunshot wound to the head. On March 27, 2018, Kim Bailey, administrative assistant to Union County Sheriff David Taylor, was found dead, leaving behind a suicide note admitting her full involvement to a more than $100,000 embezzlement scheme within the Sheriff's Department. SLED, or the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, opened up an investigation looking into the matter, only one month before Bailey took her own life. Roughly $76,000 had gone missing from the department's sex offender registry account, as well as $50,000 from the county's drug seizure account. Sex offenders in Union County are required to pay a $60 fee annually when re-registering. When police first interviewed Bailey just weeks before her death, she admitted that both she and David Taylor had been withdrawing funds from these accounts for personal use. What have I done? Disappointment. Stupid, selfish greed. And for what? 
Nothing. There is no perfect timing to get caught. And yes, I am guilty. These are only some of the excerpts taken from Bailey's suicide note found inside the home. The complete analysis for this scandal is another episode entirely. However, one interesting detail brought to light during the investigation was the unearthing of lewd sexual misconduct by Sheriff Taylor himself. After digging a little deeper, sexual text messages were found sent from Taylor's government-issued phone. Kim Bailey had previously confessed to investigators that Taylor would often send her inappropriate texts regarding his, quote, homosexual black relationships. The married Sheriff Taylor continued to send similar messages to both female and male officers, dating back as far as 2013. Around the same time Taylor was earning praise for his work on the Moody case, he was allegedly recorded on iPhone video having sex with a female subordinate officer, subsequently texting the video to other officers within the department. The person alleged to have been recording this particular video in question was Officer Randy Manis, the same Randy Manis who first discovered the Parkers' dead bodies inside of their home. Manis also admitted to investigators that years before, he witnessed Sheriff Taylor perform consensual sex acts with Manis' wife, as Randy stood by viewing as a spectator. I believe the correct term for this behavior is cuckolding. Regardless, Taylor would shockingly avoid criminal charges, and after a brief suspension, he quietly finished out his term after conveniently agreeing not to seek re-election in the future. As far as the Moody's go, Jeremy would eventually file a post-conviction relief lawsuit, claiming that his public defender did not uphold his civic duty as effective counsel. In his appeal, he stated that his lawyer did not properly represent the severity of Moody's mental illness, thus deeming his defense as unlawful and inadequate. He sought the conviction to be thrown out entirely. However, in April of 2017, the only thing Judge Thomas Cooper would be throwing away was Moody's appeal. Spokesperson for the South Carolina DA's office, Dorothy Morris, agreed with the court's ruling stating that both Moody's did in fact have proper counsel and that the two should stay in prison for the rest of their natural lives. This case is certainly an interesting one to say the least to anyone that may have ever read or heard about it for the first time through this episode. But no one can describe what these events were truly like than those who were actually personally involved at the time of these murders. Well, my name is Jermaine Smith, and I was an investigator, actually a gang-slash-narcotic investigator with the Union County Sheriff's Office. The Invisible Choir team was more than grateful to have gained the opportunity of speaking with Detective Jermaine Smith himself, the man who arguably had single-handedly brought this case to justice. In this exclusive interview, we gain a never-before-heard perspective from Smith himself on what it was like speaking directly with Jeremy and Christine Moody as their only trusted confidant in law enforcement. I started there in 2009. I left from the city police department, went over there in 2009, and since retired last year, so I don't know, maybe nine years or so that I worked with the department. Smith told us how he came to meet Jeremy Moody before the murders and how his training on building trust with the individual helped forge a bond that would ultimately lead to a confession and a subsequent conviction for the murders of both Butch and Gretchen Parker. Well, Jeremy was actually actually the first one that I made contact with, and this was back, God, I I can't give you a a particular date because I don't remember when. It was between that time frame, um, just say 2010, 2011. um, We we just kind of had an interaction after being introduced by a former deputy, but Jeremy himself was interesting to the deputy to where he had all these Nazi tattoos on him, you know, skinhead, um, a variety of, of tattoos all over his body, his face, his arms everywhere. So me being a person that I am, I figured well, I'll go down and I have a conversation with him <clears throat> just to see if he you know, actually talk to me. We had a conversation for about an hour, kind of told me the reason why he got into it and, and you know, why he decided to do it. But it was, it was interesting for him to actually sit down and have a conversation with me, with you know, the tattoos that related to him. Even before the murder, I think he might've got in trouble like twice. Um, and he would call me, you know, once he had interaction with the police, um, pretty much asked me if I could help him, you know, whether it was, you know, with money or um, just if I can help him with his particular charge. So we had a couple episodes um, after that particular conversation, which put me in a place at that that time of, um, I guess, the friend zone with him, you know, uh, an area I never thought I would actually, you know, enter with him. I thought it was just initially a conversation of him and his his tattoos. But for him to call me after the fact of that initial interview and seek my help, I guess, you know, was, was a little different. Had n- never really just met an individual like Jeremy, you know, a white supremacist, neo-Nazi, whatever you want to call it. Um, that was something that was a little different, you know, for me. And to have that interaction with him 
for him to accept me to have any type of conversation. You know, I was up for the challenge. I figured I'll go ahead and talk to him, just see if that would work. And, and it did. But again, you know, just Jeremy was a little different. He was a little different. Jeremy was a smart guy. He was very smart. Made a bad decision, but he was a smart guy. Smith explains how he built a positive rapport with Jeremy over the course of time, from his original arrest for the initial drug charge. Jeremy trusted Smith to the point where he even asked him for money at one point. During the course of this interview, Smith would eventually touch on the day both he and his fellow officers viewed the surveillance tapes. He explains in his own words how he pinpointed the Moody's after the tapes had been digitally enhanced. Jeremy, he, he dressed in a way, he was trying to disguise himself, himself and Christine. And initially, it was kind of hard to tell who was who. But looking and knowing Jeremy, I can tell by the way he was walking, that that would probably be him. And his wife, she had a, one of her legs. She had an issue with one of her legs. And just the way she was walking, I kind of could pick up on that also. And from that point, we kind of made the whole introduction of, hey, we need to go and have a conversation with these guys. And after so long, that's when he kind of requested to speak with me and kind of confessed everything of what actually happened. After years of interactions with gangs of all sorts, Smith goes on to explain just how peculiar this particular case really was and his initial confusion of how and why a white supremacist was so fixated on the idea of killing a sex offender. He killed this guy, as you know, because he was a sex offender. Didn't make a lot of sense to me, you know, you targeting sex offenders, but you're really a white supremacist. If you're going to target sex offenders, you would think that you would target African-Americans, um, whether males, females, whatever. To me, that, that only makes sense. But you actually went after your own race because, you know, this guy was a sex offender. Again, I guess that was his justification as to why that particular act took place. Investigator Smith then goes on to explain his interactions with Christine Moody. We were actually unaware up until this point that Christine was also looking to speak to Detective Jermaine Smith and only Jermaine Smith. What she tells him in this next segment has never been released to the public until now. I was at home one day cutting grass and I got a phone call from the jail and um, they said, Christine wants to talk to you. And uh, I'm going to give you exactly what she said to me when I went to the jail because she was a white supremacist also. So I walked into the jail, went back into the um, lobby to ask to meet her, to take her into the interview room. And her first words were, my nigga. You know, and it was kind of funny because that's just, you got to understand, you're dealing with white supremacists. You just take them in. I mean, no big deal. I mean, I'm used to doing this. But at the end of the day, it worked in my favor, as you see. We went in the back of the interview and um, in the back of the interview room and started talking about the actual case. And they were actually leaving church when that decision was made to go back and commit this particular crime. She said, Jermaine, Jeremy had second thoughts. You know, he changed his mind about doing it. And I told him, no, we need to go and do this because it's something that needs to be done. She said, I masterminded the whole thing. And one of her main concerns was the publicity that Jeremy was getting um, from the news media. At that point, I guess she wanted to kind of, you know, be a part of that limelight and, you know, hey, look at me. I, I participated in this also. She gave a three-page report, um, three-page statement, I can't recall everything in it, but it was, it, was, it was pretty gruesome. It was pretty gruesome. It was absolutely unnerving to hear this original account from Detective Smith and the racial epithet used by Christine when addressing him. Her casual use of the word would seemingly lend to the idea of her clearly declining mental health. When we asked Smith his opinion on this matter, he told us that although there was clearly something wrong with these individuals, they knew what they were doing and made the premeditated choice to carry out the killings. So, you know, for one, you can't be completely there to go out and commit a murder, you know, the way that they, you know, actually committed. Two, with them, you know, using the word, you know, and we'll say, you know, nigger and um, just all the black jokes that they had to say, that was part of their gang. That's what they're, you know, they did. No different than Crips and Bloods, um, Folk Nation, they had their terminology that they use, and that's just, it doesn't mean that you have a mental issue because this is a group that you want to be with. It's just a decision that you actually made. Again, like I said, Jeremy and Christine were pretty smart. They just made bad decisions, but they, there was something going on for them to make a decision to go out and just kill these individuals. He kind of told me his next target that he was going to kill, so that, that was kind of kind of different. Smith clearly has accepted all that comes with the taxing position of being the head of a gang investigative unit and was seemingly unfazed by it. And one thing is for sure, he was damn good at his job and had a way of connecting with these offenders on a human level, with the sole intent of making sure the guilty party was convicted. Smith would then go on to voluntarily give details provided to him from Christine Moody. Although some of this account is public knowledge, hearing it from Jermaine Smith himself, the man that heard it first from Christine, is particularly unsettling. She did give details about the murder, and Christine has his wife, 
you know, with her arm around her neck and a knife to her throat. And while he's shooting um, Gretchen, she cuts the neck of the wife. And in her mind, she says, man, I'm thinking, this is what she's telling me out loud, but she's thinking this in her mind that I can't wait to go over there and stab him. So after Jeremy got done shooting him, she got a knife and stabbed him, I think like five times in the abdomen. I mean, this is, she was just, you know, excited about, you know, doing that. With a seemingly close connection made between the two, or at least close in Jeremy's mind, we asked Detective Smith if he had any interaction with the killer after his sentencing. His response is quite interesting. Well, he, I mean, he doesn't know why I live or stay anything like that. So he hadn't made any attempts to, do, you know, contact me directly. But I have gotten letters from the prison where they had some type of concern with Jeremy. Um, actually, I think he had an issue with his wife. He was upset with his wife. Um, had some pretty choice words in that because of her, you know, choosing to, um, I guess, leave the relationship or whatever. But it's not much of a relationship when you both serve a life sentence. Yeah, I had a couple of letters. From, from the Department of Corrections that they gave me. Wasn't anything directly to me, just, hey, man, you might want to take a look at this. And I think it was more of an issue of, hey, you might need to come down and have a conversation with him. But it never manifested to anything to where I needed to actually go and do an interview with him. In the end, this tragic tale has no positive outcome. The small disenfranchised region of Union County, South Carolina, has been subjected to a horrific chain of events that will surely loom over their community like a dark cloud for many years to come. There is so much senseless death in this case that could have been avoided. But when hate, racism, poverty, sex offenders, and police corruption approach the same intersection at full speed, there's guaranteed to be an eventual collision. We can only hope that the next time any individual is involved in a situation like this, that they can put their brakes on before it's too late. Oh, and one more thing. It turns out that the head of the Colorado chapter of Crew 41, Archie Glenware Jr., just so happens to be a registered sex offender himself. I guess Jeremy and Christine missed Archie's name while cruising the registries for potential victims on their quest to demonstrate their superiority. <laughs>